don't screw up. That's the goal. No, I, I'm sure, exactly. I'm sure that's Joe. That's what Joe yeah. would want to hear. The train is on the tracks moving forward. It, it is not my job to slow it down. So. Hey, everyone. It's episode 316 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode, talking to Dan McKee from Michter's, here's your weekly bourbon news update. A lawsuit challenging Rhode Island's ban on national direct-to-consumer alcohol sales has survived a big procedural challenge. U.S. District Judge John McConnell Jr. on last Friday rejected the state's attempt to get the case thrown out for a lack of standing. The suit was filed back in 2019 and argues that the prohibition of out-of-state companies shipping booze directly to Rhode Island residents without first stopping at a wholesaler or a local retailer is an unconstitutional infringement on interstate commerce. There's a big problem with distillation right now, and that's the stillage or the byproduct waste. You've probably heard about distilleries giving it to farmers to feed their cows, but there's a new problem on the horizon, and that's there's too much stillage. And now Kentuckians are encouraged to submit proposals for projects that will expand the use of bourbon distilling byproduct for a competition at the Distiller Grains Symposium on October 25th. Five winners will be selected and they will present to an audience of distillers and industry stakeholders. And the applicants must submit their proposals by August 30th at bourbonreversepitch.com. The Kentucky Distillers Association has announced that Log Still Distillery from Wally Dant that we discussed on a previous roundtable is the newest and 44th member of the Craft Trail. Cousins J.W. Wally Dant III, Lynn Dant, and Charles Dant are building Log Still Distillery as an expansive distilling and tourism experience on the site of the former Dant and Head Distillery that had been shut down since 1961. The $36 million project will feature a 20,000 square foot distillery, a tasting room with a 50 gallon hybrid still, a farm to table restaurant, a 12 acre lake, an outdoor amphitheater, a 22,000 square foot event center, four unique lodging options, private train depot, wooded walking trails, and a whole lot more. Now moving on to some bourbon release news, even though there's really not much, but we just want to let you know that we have another friendly reminder that Pursuit United will be hitting retail shelves very soon, likely this week and next week, in Colorado, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Texas, as well as online at sealbox.com. This is the bourbon that Ryan and I have put our hearts into. It's a blend of three different states, bottled at 108 proof, non-chill filtered, and has a retail price of $65. We've had the opportunity to interview lots of great people from Michter's, such as the master of maturation, Andrea Wilson, the head honcho himself, Joseph Magliocco, and their former master distiller, Pam Hyman. Pam retired back in April 2019, and someone new stepped in for the role. Dan McKee worked alongside Pam at Beam for many years, and his pedigree of industry knowledge sure does show. We talk about selecting barrels for the 20- and 25-year-old Michter's releases, and learn a little bit more about their everyday products, too. With that, enjoy today's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from longtime listener Don Knott on Twitter, who writes me, in April, uh, how to act with your local store owner. Listen, 
If you covet relationships, if you value that store pick, if you value getting in first aligned for those limited edition small batches or whatever they might be, then you need to have a relationship with your local store owner. That is absolutely paramount to your bourbon journey. I do not think that people who walk into a store and say, Hey, you got any Blanton's? Hey, you got any Pappy? What about some of H. Taylor? You got any of that? I don't think those guys are the favorites of local store owners. Now, that being said, local stores are having a much more difficult time getting allocated products because the chains and, and the online stores are beginning to command uh, the vast majority of them. But the local uh, independent uh, store owner still has a lot of power, especially when it comes to barrel picks. I know here in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Westport Whiskey and Wine and Old Town Liquors, two of the best places in town to go get barrel picks. And I get barrel picks from there all the time. I'm not going in there to buy Regulars Makers Mark. I'm getting their barrel picks. Um, to be honest with you, that is the value of the independent liquor store is their unique palettes, their individual palettes, and they have relationships that they do cash in on for their barrel picks. So with that being said, have a good relationship with them. Uh, I do know people who know their kids' birthdays. They go as far as sending like Christmas cards. I mean, the the store owner uh, consumer relationship in bourbon, it's serious and you really should treat them you know, kind of like uh, my wife treats her hairdresser, like she's had the same hairdresser for 10 years and she buys her presents. I'm like, why are you buying her presents? She's like, because nobody does my hair like her. I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. And so uh, that's the best way I can put it for you, Don, is to take care of the store that's taking care of you. That means buy from there frequently, uh, buy their barrel picks, uh, buy as much as you can from their stores. But uh, like I like I was saying, I buy all my wine from Westport Whiskey and Wine. I get barrel picks from uh, Old Town. Like you, you got to be consuming, buying in these stores to get any rewards out of it. But that's going to do it for this week, folks. I appreciate you tuning in. Be safe out there. No licking handrails or trash cans. Remember, vodka sucks unless it's being used for hand sanitizer. Cheers, everybody. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long.
And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. The whole gang here today doing things remote through uh, a, a great platform we use plenty of times. But today on the show, we've got somebody that, you know, honestly, we have talked about mixtures time and time again. We have had people from mixtures on, but I started looking back at our recording calendar and I was like, we haven't had anybody from mixtures on in like almost two years now. So I said, this is uh, this is prime time we get somebody in to kind of give an inside scoop about what's been going on with the company, what's going on with, you know, products and everything like that. And I know that, you know, Fred, you've had a a, a lot of good runs with Mictors uh, recently. I mean, they uh, you sent a, a a bottle of celebration to Ludacris. I mean, that's a that's a that's ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it, it was really quite uh, quite quite fascinating to see like how well received that was from from ludicrous aside because he was he's actually like a, a mictors fan and and you know when you go after these big celebrities you have to have some big guns <laughs> to get him sometimes and that was that was uh definitely well received i did not anticipate him drinking it straight from the bottle and you know that thing's going from anywhere between five thousand and fifteen thousand dollars you know depending on who's selling it and what auction it is but i i just I was amazed, and then it, he was wa- he was washing down like probably twelve dollar chili with <laughs> Mictor's celebration. It was definitely gold. It's a great pairing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, Ryan, do you have any Mictor's and chili pairings that you usually go with? <laughs> nope, nope. I just you know I'm pretty standard. Look forward to my toasted releases, and uh, you know, ten years. That's about all I can afford. So. Uh, <laughs> It is funny, like toasted is like one of like of all those secondary barrel finishes uh, that are like going into like the new oak. I think toasted is my favorite. You know, I I really do like that. And they were one of the first to do it too. I remember it was like in 2014. I was like, yeah, it was uh, them and like Woodford came out about the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think we'll get into start talking about toasted because I think we have seen a toasted craze starting to happen here within the past year or two, where it seems that everybody's putting out some sort of toasted release. So. Yeah. We'll see if, if they were on the forefront of it, but let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So today on the show, we have Dan McKee. Dan is the master distiller over at Michter's. So Dan, welcome to the show. Ah, good morning. Thank you for having me. Excited. Oh, good. I'm glad you're here. So we usually like to start the show off with some sort of icebreaker to let people know a little bit more about you. So Dan, here's yours. You know, whether you're growing up or whether it's now, have you had like, what's the funniest or like non-typical animal that you've ever owned as a pet? Uh, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty traditional with the cats when we were younger and dogs. Um, but I think it's the dogs that, uh, they're just goofy. The ones that we own miniature dachshunds, they always, uh, they're ferocious and, uh, funny at the same time. So oh, those are like the wiener the, dogs, dachshund, right? The wiener yeah, dogs, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're always up to no good trying to do something mischievous and, um, you always know when something's up when they run out of the room very fast. They have something <laughs> in their mouth. <laughs> Ryan or Fred, do you have any 
odd pets growing up or anything like that? I got a pretty good story for you, actually. We had, uh, I used to have lizards. Like, I would have, like, uh, all sorts of lizards. I grew up, like, raising farm animals. Like, I had pigs, uh, uh, sheep, horses. The only thing I didn't have, I even had goats. I mean, the only thing I didn't have growing up was uh, was cattle because they were they were so expensive and you needed, like, uh, you know, they always got eaten by coyotes or something and where I was from, but they're a little bit I bigger had, than a chicken too. A l- little bit bigger than a chicken. <laughs> uh, but, uh, we had, uh, we had lizards. Like I would get, um, like exotic lizards. And one of them I got was kind of, we called it a swamp lizard, but it was actually kind of like a, a miniature alligator. And the thing was just wreaking havoc on the house. Like it would, it kept escaping. Uh, and it was not, uh, peculiar for our lizards to escape. We had an iguana escape, that, but they always came back for some reason. And probably because the birds and hawks and so forth would, you know, they they were about to eat them. But we had a swamp lizard. And we were just like fed up with this thing. It shit all over the house. It got out everywhere. It got into the cereal. I mean, it was just like it was a very odd lizard. And so we we're like, let's sell it. And this was, of course, before the Internet. So we put a we put an ad in the in the newspaper to sell this thing. And we got the weirdest messages like this is back, Ryan, when you had like little uh, little cassettes for your for your answering machine and you'd come home you'd oh, see yeah. a little red red blinking light you'd press it and, and and this is part of my family's like every time we get together we share this story but this guy like calls up I'm calling about that swamp blizzard I just want to know what it, I mean, the guy was like talking about like he wanted to eat it you know it was like he was definitely Cajun and you know living in Oklahoma City and uh suffice it to say we didn't sell it to him and the lizard got out not too long after that, and it was the winter, so we assume it froze to death outside. Fred, did you let the lizard walk around the house? Yeah, yeah, we'd let him like uh, you know hang out and everything. We actually we we outfitted our fireplace to be kind of like a, a sanctuary, and the the top of it was the chimney was like closed off, so that area they couldn't get out in. So they had like all this room to run and everything, and then we would let them out and then. You know, probably not the best idea, but uh, I, I loved I loved having lizards. They were just they were incredible pets. Yeah, except that swamp lizard or bark. Ex- exactly. And you have to feed them like crickets. That was the yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, real easy. So let's go ahead and we'll uh, we'll, we'll dive into today's topic. So I kind of want to start off with an easy one for Dan because I got to kind of know what the easiest job in the world comes to when it comes to releasing like Mictors twenty and Mictors twenty five every year because. The whole world goes crazy for it, but I could, could imagine, at least for me personally, tasting through these barrels, are there actually some bad ones or every once in a while you're like, okay, like we'll, we'll get rid of this one. Or I mean, is it, is it all just all gravy every time when you taste these barrels? I, I wish it was gravy. No, it, but it is a lot of fun. Not every barrel comes out, um, you know, as expected, but you know, that's where, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with uh, Andrea Wilson, our master of maturation and, and the team. We have, uh, you know, a great team here and and the work that's involved, the data collection and so forth. So, you know, when we're going in and pulling those barrels, we have a great idea of where they're at from continuous monitoring. So, but yeah, you do come across ones that you try to figure out what may have occurred there. But with the stocks that we have, we're very proud of them. You know, as you've had the 2025 year, they're great whiskeys and, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to be a part of these older, older whiskeys. Yeah, I would imagine. Okay, go ahead. How many, how many barrels you got left of it? 
Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I was writing down, Kenny. <laughs> you know, one th- one thing we're going to find out today is I love my jo- job, and uh, Michter's has been great to me. So there's a lot of things I may not be able to speak about today, but uh, now what? You know, it's something that they're allocated, of course, and there'll be limited releases throughout the future. And we don't want to overdo it and want it to be special and, you know, want to bring these great whiskeys um, to the consumer and, and to be enjoyed. So I think there's something special about that. Kenny, in, in Dan's defense of answering that question regarding how many barrels are left, I have been trying to pry information out of Michter's for 15 years and there has never been a more uh, there's never been a door more sealed tight than than the Michter's team with uh, they they keep a pretty uh, a, a pretty a pretty good ship with that uh, loose lip sink ships kind of philosophy and <laughs> that they don't they they don't uh, share too many details about the whiskey. But one thing we have seen year in year out is the whiskey's pretty damn good, um, especially those older releases. I'll say that. There's a lot, and Lou Bryson just recently wrote an article about this for the Daily Beast about like stop spending your money on older whiskey. And I think for the large part, that's true. But Michter's time and time again puts out older releases that don't taste like a fence post. You know, they, they're not over oak. They're really good. And so, Dan, I want to come to you back to those older releases. What What is y'all's process, um, you know, for choosing these? Because again, you get a lot of people with 25-year-old bourbon on their hands, and it's going to taste off. And y'all's always taste spot on. Well, first, I think just when you're tasting these older whiskeys, you really have to think outside of the box, open up um, to the experience that you're in hand. You know, obviously, these are going to be way different than those 10, 12-year-old whiskeys that a lot of people truly enjoy. You know, we do kind of uh, have that house profile we're looking, you know, the 20-year you get a lot of that, you know, whether it's black cherry, the 25, those, you know, whether it's dark toffees, things like that. But neither one of them are over, over oak, woody, wood bombs, things like that. They're never that. And I think that's something special. But there is a consistency we're looking for, you know, from each release. We know it's going to be, you know, a little different. You're going to have different variances. But uh, is it rich, complex? great mouthfeel, things we're looking for, a nice finish. And again, no, like you said, nobody wants to just feel like they're biting into tree bark or medicinal, things like that. So if a barrel ever did come across like that, we're not afraid of rejecting it just because it's been aging and we've spent all the time and, and resources into aging that barrel. We won't release unless it's ready and fits the profile, and I think that's something special. And that kind of that goes through all of our products, whether it's our US one line, our ten-year marks, and so forth. It's just not going to be released if it doesn't fit our standards. Yeah, and I, I think one question that kind of precedes this a little bit is, you know, when you are trying to figure out the flavor profiles and it, like, kind of talk about your palate training or what did you do growing up in the industry to be able to prepare you to be able to say like, oh, okay, we're going to take care of 20, 25 year old releases and and how you got involved in that process too. So when I joined Michter's uh, six years ago as a distillery manager, and we were in entering into phase three with the construction of our Shively distillery and so forth, mm-hmm. I had a great opportunity. Uh, you know, I was working with uh, master distiller, uh, Willie Pratt and our distiller, Pam Heilman. Um, again, Andrea Wilson. And so, you know, that's 
the experience just with those three individuals, I mean, it's a, it's amazing. So kind of coming in and then learning about Michter's and someone asked me about what will you remember about Willie? And I, I remember sitting in his office and, and, you know, having conversations and he loved tasting whiskey. And I remember the first time he pulled out a whiskey that was a little over 30 years and I got to try it and I'd never experienced something like that before. And at that moment, I, I didn't have words for it because it was, it was amazing, but it was completely different than anything that I had um, experienced before. So having whiskeys growing up like in your 20s and, you know, experiencing it for different reasons. And then as I'm getting older, you're starting to drink whiskey and really, really enjoying the flavors and the experience it offers. And then coming to Michter's and actually just a wide, you know, we have so many different uh, expressions with different profiles and then just kind of learning that way and and hearing the experiences from people like Willie and Pam Heilman and so forth. And, and that, I think that's really helped. And Again, I always talk about each expression has a a profile that we want to stay true to. And um, just adding, you know, you'll always hear, even if you had four barrels, you know, barrel one may go well with four, but it doesn't blend well with three or things like that. So those are interesting things to work with. The chemistry makeups are different, but it also, you know, that's the art of it and bringing it together. Science and art, and that's whiskey making. and it's, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to be in this position. It's a, a lot of fun to experience it. Absolutely. And you, and you got your start, uh, at Jim Beam, right? With, um, with Andrea, is that correct? Uh, with Pam, uh, or Pam, Pam sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Pam, I'm sorry. Uh, yes. What was it like working under her at Jim Beam and the difference being at Michter's? What were the processes, you know, one's a behemoth, one's kind of starting out, you know, what's the difference there? Well, it was a great experience when, when I first Hired on at Jim Beam, I, I started out as a distillery operator at the Jim Beam Claremont Distillery um, for a couple of years there. And, and talk about a great job. I mean, just making whiskey hands-on, being a part of it. You know, there's the good times and bad times when you're cleaning up messes and, and grain. And that was a good experience. And, uh, and then a couple of years later, I had the opportunity to promote to a distillery supervisor at the Booker No Distillery in Boston, Kentucky. And that's where I joined with Pam Heilman. I was always on third shift. So I would stay into the morning when Pam, as the distillery manager, would come in. And, and you learn a lot. I, I was very fortunate working at Jim Beam because you work with such great people that had 10 years, all the way 40 years of experience. So, you know, that's experience that you can't buy in a textbook. And again, I, I always cherish those moments when I was at Jim Beam. And yeah, we the volume itself. I mean, we we made a, the team made a lot of whiskey, and then you come to Michter's, which you know, kind of like a mid-sized distillery. Our volume is much less, but we're doing those same things. You know, quality is important at you know all distilleries, and you know, Michter's has a cost be damn approach towards quality, which is truly amazing. I mean, I can call our president Joe Malioko, and you know, if we have a idea that even if it costs more, less efficient, but it'll improve the experience in the whiskey, you know, it's something we're willing to try. And I think that's what's amazing coming to Michter's. And one of the things that kind of sets you all apart from, from the industry is your barrel entry proof, going in at 103 barrel entry proof. And, and I think that's pretty common knowledge. But uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was was the was the yeast. Like, so you are now you all are now uh, in that 
in that phase where you all are making your own whiskey, you went from the pl- from the where you were sourcing to when you were contract distilling. Now you're you're making your own whiskey. What what can you tell us about the yeast? Are you all propagating, or is it dry yeast? Or give give us some background on the yeast you're using. Yeah, sorry that that's one of those topics we don't discuss too much about our yeast mm-hmm. uh, program. And I, I know it's we'll it, just it, shut it all down. Yeah, like, it, I know it is very part? exciting. <laughs> Well, see, I, I, I set that up, Dan, because I thought that was one of them you could talk no, about. No, you know, yeast, uh, kind of the mash bill percentages, things like that. But no, what I will say is, um, you know, we do have a yeast program here. And you mentioned in phase one where we went out and, you know, purchased uh, matured stocks that we wanted to emulate. Phase two, we uh, went to another distillery here in Kentucky and, and they produced to our specifications. And I, what I can say is we're using those same yeast to, as we go into, you know, here in phase three, so that our whiskeys will have a transition and, and be those same high quality um, whiskeys. How long has phase three been going on for now? So the Shively Distillery, we opened in 2012 as far as bottling and processing and so forth. The larger stills at the Shively Distillery came online in August of 2015. So we're getting close to a release time that's going to be part of this, or is it or is it starting to now start blend in? So, you know, with let's say our US one line, that's another great thing. Again, we're a privately owned company. We can do a lot of things that maybe larger uh, distilleries may not, but we do release on a taste profile and not, not an age statement. Our, you know, a typical or average whiskey is between five and seven years. So those barrels now are getting of age of over five years. And as, as we deem them ready, they'll start to transition in. You know, I remember that time when you all were, were setting up and then you had, you know, the, the collapses at Fort Nelson, which is now, you know, set. But there was, that was a rough go. I, I remember when the Shively distillery was getting set up and, and the department would come in and say, you need to move your auger or something, wherever the grains were coming in, you need to move that over two inches. I felt like, I felt like, you know, in that early phase, there's like Michter's couldn't catch a break. You know, they had the issues with like the Fort Nelson, uh, building, you know, those have been pretty well documented. They've got it fixed now, but they started working on that in 2010 or even before that, I think. And then, you know, Shively, but once they got, once they got humming, man, uh, you know, that Shively distillery is beautiful. The Fort Nelson distillery, it's, I think that's got the, you know, the best distillery bar there is, you know, especially when it comes to cocktails and it just, um, you know, things are finally humming for you all, Dan. Yeah, it's, you know, like I said, when, when I, uh, started here, I, I was, a what we call the working distillery manager and. It, it was exciting. The The distillery itself was under construction with, again, Willie Pratt and Pam Heilman uh, overseeing it. And then I joined the help and some of the vessels were already set. So I was there before the mechanical, the electrical and all of that was and the granary was even built. So I saw it from all the nuts and bolts from start to finish and and just to be a part of that. But yeah, we did have a lot of uh, little quirks, little startup issues. But, you know, every distillery goes through that when they're starting up. But now we're we're very proud of it. Our, you know, our distillation system, 100% copper. We have a 46 foot tall, 32 inch diameter, continuous column still to a doubler pot still. There's over 11,000 pounds of copper in the system. 
you know, it just makes for a very nice, when I say clean, but flavorful distillate. We're very proud of the distillate. It has some fruitiness to it, nice oily mouthfeel. And yeah, it's, um, you know, from those first days that we were testing off the stills, I mean, that was one of the proudest moments just to see everybody's face when we actually, you know, we made the mash, we fermented it and sent it to the beer still. And, and we've been going on. It's, um, you know, uh, like a year later, the um, it was determined we needed to expand and we added some more fermenters and eventually here soon we'll uh, add a few more fermenters uh, for continued growth. So yeah, it's pretty exciting here. Isn't that the problem? You just, you feel like you can never make enough. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say a problem, but it's challenging. Uh, you know, it's, it's exciting for our industry, for everybody. I mean, to see all distilleries expand, it's, um, I, th- I think that's a great thing. I want to pick your brain on blending just for a second. So you talked about like US one um, and bringing a blend of five to seven year old uh, whiskeys. So going into it, do you have do you all have like a set formula like knowing, okay, based on years past, we know that X amount of five year barrels to X amount of seven year barrels from these places in the warehouse are probably going to give us, you know, that profile that we're looking for for US one. What's the process of blending different whiskeys at different ages from different places of the warehouse? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. What's the process of blending different whiskeys at different ages from different places of the warehouse? So there are protocols. I mean, this is the great part of working with, again, Andrea Wilson, our master of maturation and, and her overseeing that. The, um, but, you know, as far as, you know, our small batch, our US-1 Kentucky straight bourbon, our small batches uh, are truly small. They are, they're the equivalent of 20 full barrels. That's all our equipment can handle. So, again, you have to have very high quality, consistent barrels to do that. Um, and we have flavor pro- profiles. So, you know, as those barrels, whether they're five to seven, we, we have been monitoring them, doing tasting, 
doing the scientific lab testing on them. So we understand what they're offering. And yeah, there is protocols to bring from different areas to establish it. There's times though that we can put a, um, you know, for testing before we go full scale, you'll bring in those barrels and determine that it's it's not the, you know, Michter's house style for our US-1 bourbon. And so then we go back to the drawing board. But yeah, there's definitely those protocols set in place where to, where to pull. And, you know, as you guys well know, at different parts of the warehouse and age a little different. But that's one thing that we've also are doing really well at our warehouses are, you know, they're, they're not the traditional non-heated warehouses. We do heat cycling here. They're only four, four floors high. So there's a consistency there. Um, it kind of reduces those variances from maybe the very tall uh, warehouses that you'll see on the countryside. I think a, an interesting anecdote there was the fact that you said only 20 barrels go into a small batch. And as most of our listeners know that the term small batch doesn't actually mean anything. There's nothing that's designated for it or anything like that. However, when you even think of, since there is no designation, it could be up to 300 barrels that go into a quote unquote small batch. And hearing you only do 20, just to kind of put it in perspective to a lot of people, like that's on average, maybe somewhere after you get cut with water, maybe somewhere between 4,500 to 5,500 bottles out of 20, 20 barrels that you're going to get into it. So it's, it's surprisingly a lot smaller than what I would, would have thought that you all would be doing into a batch. Yeah, it's uh, something that was started early on. Like I said, you know, every distillery is about quality, but here at Michter's, we do a lot of things that, you know, support that. It's not just me saying it. And, you know, that was one of it. Our, our products are either single barrel or truly a uh, small batch. And that was something that was established early on. And as we continue to grow, we have shown no signs of changing that. It's something we're very proud of. Yeah, by only going 20 full barrels, it reduces that opportunity to kind of introduce maybe some subpar barrels. There are distilleries that do over 500, even over 1,000 barrel batches. So it's um, something that we uh, are very proud of. Was that the case at your former job? And is it easier for you to, you know, to blend those bigger batches than the, the smaller ones? I, I won't speak to whether it's easy or not and or what my uh, previous employer was doing, but I will just say for us, it, it is challenging. I mean, again, you do come across uh, barrels that may not have aged to the expectation. And, you know, that's something that is, let's say our processing operators, they're, uh, they're doing sensory and, you know, all the quality checks on the incoming barrels. And there are cases where we have to reject um, matured barrels and, actually send them from our facility to be repurposed into fuel ethanol. And, you know, it's the same with our distillate. If we unfortunately have a batch that didn't maybe ferment well, or um, it doesn't fall within our standards, we actually reject it. And, you know, it's painful to have to call the owner and let them know that we <laughs> rejected a batch, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that uh, we know if the distillate's not right at the beginning, it's not going to be right at the end, and we're not going to force it. It truly ultimately is about bringing that best American whiskey to the consumer and enjoying it. And you have to have that consistency and um, great whiskey. For sure. You know, I kind of had a question about your your sort of career path here too. You know, with, with Pam moving on to retirement and them looking for a new successor, did you think that you were going to be next in line or was there an interview process? Like how did that all happen? 
And what was the transition like for you as well? Yeah, so my journey to master distiller was, um, I'd say, interesting to say the least. You know, if you go back to the start of my career in 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 the industry as a distillery operator, I don't think that thought ever came into my mind. And in fact, I know it didn't. And when I had the opportunity to come to Michter's, you know, again, Willie Pratt was our master distiller at the time and things were going very well, but he decided to retire. Pam assumed the master distiller role and all intents and purpose, I thought that would have gone longer than, than it did. And yeah, at some point when, you know, you were interviewed and Michter's is always, you know, we're looking to the future. So there was a process there. And when I was offered the opportunity, it was a uh, it was very rewarding, and it's um, who doesn't want to be the master distiller? So I, I I'm very excited. <laughs> I, very, <laughs> I do I do not want to be a master distiller. No, no way. You know, I'm I'm very humble about it. I, I it's it's an opportunity that you know, 15 years ago I would have never have seen, and and here we are, and doing things like this, and and going out into into market and meeting such great people. I mean. You know, the consumer, bartenders, bar, restaurant, store owners, things like that. I've, I've met so many great people and the, the passion that's out there is amazing. That's something from year one that I wouldn't have known until, you know, most recently. And just to see the excitement that the bourbon whiskey industry generates, it's, it's, it is exciting. I know I use that a lot, but it, it is very rewarding, very exciting. Do you think that's the weirdest part about the transition is actually having to go and, and be a, a speaking figure rather than always turning dials and knobs all day? I, I, I will say it, it um, again, it, it's a lot of fun, but, you know, like doing something like this, this is very hard for me. I always kind of say I'm a production guy and I'm, that's where my comfort level's at. Doing stuff like this, you know, there's a lot of ums and, you know, trying to think about what to say next and but th- yeah, this is one of the more difficult parts of it. Yeah, we're here to put we're here to put the pressure on you. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things about Michter's is that you all have kind of taken like an old school approach with 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 your titles uh, in in your in your job roles. Uh, if you go back to the 1950s, the master distiller didn't do things with the barrels; they just kind of like they put the whiskey in the barrel. They did the fermentation. They put the whiskey in the barrel. And they left it to the warehouse managers. They might go back and taste and everything, but and they might choose what the product was. But that was they didn't really focus on the warehouses. You have a very distinct role, and Andrew Wilson has a very distinct role. I'm curious as to what is your involvement in the warehouse and the maturation. In you know, does is there some overlap there, or do you just put it in the barrel and you're out? I am definitely uh, responsible for the front end part of it, bringing the grains in, the mashing, fermentation, distillation, and uh, passing all the QC checks, entering it into the barrel. And then Andrea, is she's overseeing that maturation process. But there is definitely a lot of overlapping. I mean, just let's say, for example, a year into distillate's been into the barrel for a year, we're already pulling samples. We're tasting as a team. We're, you know creating data. And that goes on through the lifetime of those barrels. And then with whether it's um, using different types of barrels, I'm in on the process, making decisions. There's the voice there that contributes. And and then, of course, when it comes time to release and bringing different barrels together, 
I'm a part of that. And then ultimately making the decision when what's ready to be released. You know, I have a question about that too, because I remember when we interviewed Pam and she had done all of her tasting in the morning. It's now 10 a.m. as the time we're actually recording this. Have you already done tastings for the day or are you more of a, an afternoon person? I typically in the morning. So I didn't today because of preparing for this, of course, but no, the typically a day would be coming in, uh, walking around the department, seeing how everyone is, seeing how production is going. And then also it gives the distillery time to get uh, samples and things like that. But whether it's tasting the new distillate, the distillery's already been running. So I, I can taste distillate off the stills and then also the production from the day before, before, as it's going through its QC, you know, we do our sensory panel here. We have um, over 25 employees that are trained to approve new distillate. Um, we have, a, you know, the GC mass spec to do chemical analysis. And it has to pass both of them before it can be approved. If, as I mentioned before, if one of those is off, let's say the sensory picks up on something that the GC didn't, we'll actually fail it. And then, you know, send it out of here to be repurposed in the fuel ethanol. But, you know, that's a, an important. And then once it passes, we give the warehouse the green light to go ahead and cut that distillate to a much lower proof. As, as Fred mentioned, we, we go in the barrels at 103 proof, which is the lowest entry proof of any distillery of scale. And that's for all of our products. Um, that's very important for us to do that. And it's very expensive. It causes us to use more barrels. But again, it dissolves those sugars more readily. It it helps create that nice smoothness that's associated with uh, mixers, and it's something that we do. But yeah, it's going around. I typically taste in the morning, but truthfully, all day long, it it doesn't matter. It's it's when it's available, when time allows. But usually, with the distillate, it's in the morning. And I did have a question about one of your releases because it's only happened, I think, uh, on rare occasions is you all putting out a, a barrel-proof expression. And knowing, and I don't have any bottles or anything like that, but I don't know what like the final proof it ended up being. But you know, going in at a lower proof of 103, and depending on where you're pulling these barrels from, what sort of variations do you see in barrel-proof expressions or barrel-proof sampling and everything like that that's coming out and tasting? So as we go in at 103, we see a lot of our barrels come out around 108 to 112, 110 being kind of the average. I think for 2020, we did the toasted barrel finish uh, rye and the average ABV on that was 54.6. So, you know, that's right in line with what we typically see. Sometimes you'll see some barrel proofs up around 114, but, you know, right at that 110, 112 is what we see. And, and if you think about it, it's, you know, that's another thing that we always speak of and how it really makes our whiskeys great is when we go in at that lower, you have that chemical reaction that, again, that we prefer. But as it comes out, you know, we're adding more water up front, but you take someone that went into the barrel at a much higher, higher proof, they're going to come out uh, a lot higher and they're having to add about 50% more water to get it to bottling proof. So, you know, at least the water at the front end has those characteristics of the maturation process and, again, creates that nice, real rich, flavorful whiskey that we that we have. Do you think uh, lower entry proofs, um, they obviously taste greater at a younger age. Do you think they can hold up to age as it matures? Because it seems like to me the ones, the, the distilleries that do have those high entry proofs, 
it takes them a long time to get where you want them. But once they get there, they're very good and they age well. Um, but I'm not sure about the lower entry proof because we really haven't had a ton, you know, until recently. You know, there's so many factors, just like everything. But I, yes, the low barrel entry proof will do fine as it ages. But it's like anything, you know, how is it made? How is it aged? The barrels it's aged, you know, we use new toasted charred American white oak barrels. I mean, talk about maximum flavor extraction with that toasting and then charring. So, but again, that's go. That's why we go into the warehouse and we're continuously collecting data as the barrels mature. We even have a, a program that we have stainless steel drums that if we see that a barrel is um, kind of, whether it, it's at its best, it may start to plateau and we want to stop that. And, and we have that opportunity to put that in a stainless steel drum to stop the aging process. But yeah, very much so. Low entry proof will, will do just fine. And of course, you got the uh, heat cycled warehouses, you know, that plays a little bit of a role in uh, what you all got cooking. Yeah, I mean, Kentucky is one of the best places in the world to age whiskey and the, the changing of the seasons and heating up and that whiskey inside that barrel, as it warms up, the pressure inside increases, it drives that whiskey into the capillaries of the wood. And then when it cools down, that whiskey's coming back out, extracting those flavors. And over a course of a year, we say there's about four to six natural cycles where it's heating up, cooling down. Well, over the winter here in Kentucky, when the temperature's at a lull, we, we go ahead and heat up the warehouse. We see a certain temperature change, and then eventually we'll, we'll stop the heat. We'll open the louvers and windows and let it naturally cool down, and we've caused a cycle. Now, again, you know, you can't put it on the label, but our data, our experiences show that we're probably adding six months for each year that we heat cycle. And, you know, again, that's the art of it, it the color extraction, the flavor, all of that is, you know, mouthfeel. It's, it's impacted by that uh, additional heat cycling. Not many distilleries do it. It's very expensive. We lose a lot of angel share. Um, I think uh, a traditional non-heated warehouse is somewhere around 2, 2.5% angel share, and we're upwards around 4%. So it's uh, definitely an art of managing the barrels and so forth. So another question I kind of want to pose is, as we kind of start rounding this out a little bit is, one of the last offerings, and I think, Ryan hinted at the very beginning of this was, you know, the toasted barrel bourbon came around. I think the very first one was in like 2014. And Fred said that Woodford kind of followed suit pretty pretty soon after that. What has been going on with the toasted barrel craze in the past year that has seemed to just being blown up everywhere? Because you all have multiple expressions of it now. Yeah, I... I... I think it's very exciting to be a part of that. And yes, 2014, we, the, it was the uh, Toasted Barrel uh, Bourbon. I think we did start it out in 14 and 15. Fortunately, we can't uh, do it every year because our whiskeys are allocated. So we have to be very thoughtful in the process. You've now seen the Toasted uh, Barrel Finish uh, Barrel Strength um, Rye. And then we also have done the uh, Toasted Barrel Finish uh, Original Sour Mash. And each one's a little different. You know, we use, again, each whiskey's fully aged in that new toasted charred American white oak barrel. Uh, once it's fully aged, uh, we remove it and put it into a, a new toasted uncharred American white oak barrel. We finish it for a certain amount of time. And, and again, same things. We're looking for those certain house style in those toasted products. And 
again, that flavor extraction you get from that toasted barrel, it's amazing. And going back to the uh, barrel strength toasted barrel rye, it's those burnt sugars, those toasted notes, marshmallow, cream brulee-esque, you know, whatever your experience is, but those are some uncommon notes. The barrels for that, the wood staves were air dried and seasoned for uh, 24 months. We typically air dry and season our wood staves for a minimum of 18 months, all the way to 60 months. So that's something that that we're very proud of. But there's just uh, the expression that's created when you finish in a toasted barrel. I, I, you know, a lot of people you either like it or don't, but I think it's very rich and flavorful, and uh, they're very popular. So. I think other distilleries have seen that, and it's um, something they're trying to duplicate. Where did that originally come from, that idea of doing a secondary toast? So it, it was a little before my time really at Michter's here, um, but I know, again, you know, you have Willie Pratt with over 50 years experience in the industry and very familiar with uh, aging maturation process and how toasting and charring and all of that uh affects the whiskey. But, you know, when you're toasting, that's the art of uh, slow heat and time. You know, you've raised the barrel, you set it over um, an oak pot of that's, you know, using oak chips that are on fire, just generating that uh, a a lower heat. And over time, that helps break down those inner layers of the wood. And you have different toast profiles, like a lower Toast profile can allow more fruitiness, whereas like a heavy toast profile can bring out some real mocha type notes, characteristics. And, you know, there's a lot to play with. Our original Sour Mash, that toasted barrel finished product, um, we went with a different toast profile than, let's say, the toasted barrel finished rye because they're two different whiskeys. That original Sour Mash whiskey is a very elegant whiskey, so we didn't want to overpower it with a a higher toast profile. So we went with a little bit of a softer one, lighter. And I think it complemented. It's about complementing it. Really cool. So one last question I kind of want to throw at you as we start wrapping this up here, you know, looking forward into this next year, like what is a professional goal that Dan McKee has for, for 2021? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you know, Mictors has been very successful thanks to so many people you know, in the industry, like I said, the bar, restaurants, store owners, consumers, it's amazing what people are doing and the support for the brand. So number one professional goal is to continue working with the team, Andrea Wilson, Matt Bell, our distiller, Kyle Lloyd, head of R&D and so forth, and just continue the success that we're doing now. I mean, it's not necessarily going out. My goal is not to make changes necessarily to Mictors and what can I just necessarily put my mark on. It's about continuing the success, but also as we go, is there different product lines that we can do? You know, our Shanks and uh, Bombergers, our legacy brand, we call it kind of outside that Mictors house style. Those are two fun releases that we kind of play around with. We haven't settled in on a recipe yet. We've used the new toasted charred American white oak barrels and some chinka pen oak barrels and things like that. It's something to play around with and create very nice, high quality whiskeys. And, but continuing the success would be my professional or, you know, goal for the year. And then working with the team and seeing us grow into the future. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Don't screw up. That's the goal. No, I, I'm sure, exactly. I'm sure that's Joe. That's what Joe yeah. would want to hear. The train is on the tracks moving forward. It, it is not my job to slow it down. So 
Yep. Perfect. Well, Dan, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure again, at first to have you on as first time here being on Bourbon Pursuit, but also to get some more Michter's representation. I know it's one of those brands that people always love to to know more about. And they're like, how'd the name come? And like, oh, it's Michael and Peter. Blah, yeah. blah. Like there's, there's so many, there's such good history that that comes into it. And, you know, you'd even mentioned some of the legacy brands of, of you know, Shanks and Barnburgers that we didn't even get into. I mean, that's, those are really some historic brands and really even Michter's itself has a, a lot of good rooted history. So if you haven't yet, please go and check out our past podcasts that we've had talk about Michter's and Michter's history. And they've also got a lot of great history on the website too. Uh, Dan, for anybody that wants to know more about you or follow along or see what you're doing in this year, how can people get in contact with you or follow you? Of course, there's our Michter's website. It discusses all things Michter's. I also have the Instagram Michter's Master Distiller, which forgive me, I'm still learning that whole social media thing there. So I'm kind of old it's all school. About being in front of people now. It's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah very much. Get so. out from, you'll I, be I, on TikTok soon. I'll tell you what, that that's one of my goals for 2021 is to do better on uh, uh, social media, Instagram. But no, definitely, uh, that's one way. And then also hopefully here, um, you know, sometime this year, we really hope that we can start kind of going out and market and everything. And and that's that's the best way is I, I enjoy that so much, that interaction you know, the team, we're creating something here that's being enjoyed all over the world. And, and that's the most satisfaction. So th- that that's what I love. And also, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. It was great uh, talking to you guys. And and um, yeah, it's very exciting. I look forward to the future. And whiskey is a very special thing. I agree. And Kenny, I'll say that, you know, Michter's has a, a backlog of folks who should be in the Bourbon Hall of Fame. Uh, I think Willie Pratt should be in, Pamela Heilman, definitely Andrew Wilson. And although not affiliated with with Dan's uh, Michters, the the last uh, master distiller in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Michters, Dick Stoll, also, you know, it doesn't, you know, I think it, you can make a case for him. So I think there's a there's a lot of great talent that's been in the Michters portfolio, and I'd like to see them get in the Bourbon Hall of Fame in the next you know, few years, especially Willie. May he rest in peace. A lot of good pedigree, that's for sure. Uh, and I also forgot to mention at the top of this that Dan is also a listener to the podcast, so it's also great to have somebody that is uh, uh, that listens, actually is on it, and is able to kind of share their story. So Dan, thank you once again for coming on. So make sure you follow Dan. You can also follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcast, as well as on all the socials. And with that, we will see you all next week.